We're continuing this series that we've been looking at for a while on the life of Elisha. This guy, this prophet who had ridiculous amounts of faith. And God kept showing up in his life over and over again in miraculous ways. And the hope is is that we would look at Elisha's life and that we would begin to ask the question, what can I do to experience the divine in my life? How can I begin to have people around me where God just keeps showing up again and again? And so we've talked about that it takes obedience, a willingness to trust what God asks of us and tells us to do. That it takes a sense of commitment, being willing to walk according to what God has for us, not look for a way out of it or a way to pass the buck or pass it on to somebody else, but that we would take a hold of what God wants to do in our lives. That we would love with compassion even when it doesn't make sense and even when it's our enemies. That we would know that God is the one who provides for us even when there seems to be nothing there. That we would be determined to pursue God with our heart and with our life. Determined to get closer to Jesus and to say, I just need more of Him in my life. And that we would know that our God is in the transformation business that who you were and what you did is not who you are, but that he is changing and transforming and calling you to believe that our God works in miraculous ways. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to get your Bible out this morning, whether it's a paper Bible or a digital Bible. And if you happen to have forgot your Bible, there should be some blue ones in the chair in front of you. You can grab that one. But I invite you to get your Bible out and lift it up nice and high this morning and just say, I got my Bible, PJ. Heavenly Father, I ask that your congregation this morning again would not hear my words but would hear what you want to say to them through the reading of your word and as we talk about what it means, God. I pray that I would get out of the way and that you would help people to hear whatever it is that maybe you need for them to hear. Encourage and strengthen us today with your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 5, if you want to get turned there, or find there, or tapped there, or whatever device or Bible you're using. 2 Kings chapter 5 is where we're going to be, and we're going to be looking at the story of a foreign dignitary who visits Israel seeking healing, and he learns that one of God's greatest pathways in our lives to his work is humility. I believe that knowing the right path to take in life can get you from where you want to go, or to go from where you are to where you want to go. Knowing the right path can save a lot of frustration, right? If you know where you are and you have a sense of where you want to go, knowing the right way to get from where you are to where you want to go can save you a lot of frustration in life. I think about one of the things that I really enjoy doing, especially down in Florida, is kayaking. And the Tampa Bay area is just littered with places to go kayaking, different kinds of water and different experiences. And one of the experiences that I love the most is kayaking through the mangroves. And there's a particular place kind of just south of Lake Seminole where there's this mangrove forest. And it is one of my favorite places to go kayaking and and to take people kayaking with me. 
But a couple of times, I have found myself kayaking through the mangrove forest. And I'll never forget like the first time I did it. I, I had kayaked into the middle of the mangrove forest, and I was kind of having fun, but I had paid no attention whatsoever to what the tides were that day. I didn't know anything about the area, and I was kind of newish to the Florida area. And I see these little rapids, and I think to myself, well, that looks fun. And I kayak over there fairly fast, and I found myself with my kayak wedged onto a bed of barnacles and oysters. And I didn't know a whole lot about Florida or Florida wildlife. And when I'm up north, if you catch your kayak on a sandbar, you just get out and you push it off the sandbar and move it. So I'm thinking, this is fine. I wear flip-flops everywhere. I've got tough feet. I'm just going to move my kayak. And I step my feet and my hands out. And some of you are shaking your heads because you know that barnacles and oysters are like razor blades. And I sliced my hands and my feet up like crazy. I wished I'd have known the way to go. The path that to get from where I was to where I wanted to go would have saved from some frustration in life. Sometimes I've been out in the mangroves and I've just kind of gone out. And one of the things about mangroves is you can think, well, if I go this way or that way, it's just going to connect in a, a few feet up ahead. And yet you take that path and you soon find out that mangrove forests are kind of like a rat in a maze. <laughs> it does not go where you think it's going to go. The twists and turns take you in places that is not the direction you originally wanted to head. And so I remember another instance being in the kayak and getting kind of well, just lost, and having to pull out the phone and zoom in on Google Maps. Thankfully, I had it and go, I know where I'm at in the middle of the mangroves, and I know the dock is somewhere over there. How do I get back to my car? Oh, knowing the path to take in life can sometimes save us a lot of frustration. And I believe we'll see in this morning's story that humility is an important path that God wants us to follow in order to see his work in and through our lives. Now, once again, we're going to read 2 Kings chapter 5, and I'd love it if the team in the back, if you could kind of help me with clicking through PowerPoint as we read this story. And for those of you who maybe haven't been with us before, this is just a reminder, preaching school tells me not to read a passage of Scripture that's so long, but the Bible's better than what I have to say, so we're going to read a long passage of Scripture. I hope you hang with me. It's an entire story. It's a good story. So we're going to read this, 2 Kings chapter 5, starting at verse 1. It says, Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master, and he was highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, and yet he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out, and they'd taken captive a young girl from Israel. She served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram said. I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I'm sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes, said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to, be, someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? He's trying to pick a quarrel with me. 
when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, Elisha sent the king this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me. Then he'll know that there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and his chariots. He stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him. Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan. Your flesh will be restored and you'll be cleansed. Naaman went away angry. I thought surely he would come out to me. Stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. Wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Aren't Arbana and Farfar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? He turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went after him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? How much more when all he tells you is to wash and be cleansed? So Naaman went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times. And as the man of God had told him, his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him. He said, now I know there is no God in all of the world except in Israel. Please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, as surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I won't accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, Elisha refused. If you will not, Naaman said, then please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. Your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Ryman to bow down, and he's leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Ryman, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. After Naaman had traveled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, My master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, not accepting what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I'm going to run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman. And when Naaman saw Gehazi running toward him, he got down from his chariot to meet him. Is everything all right? He asked. No, everything's all right, Gehazi answered. But my master sent me to say that two young men from the company of prophets, they've just come from the hill country of Ephraim. Can you give them a talent of silver and, and two sets of clothing? By all means, take two talents, said Naaman. And he urged Gahazi to accept them, tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing, and gave them to two of his servants. They carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and put them away in the house, and he sent the men away, and they left. He went in and stood before his master, and Elisha asked him, Where have you been, Gehazi? Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. Elisha said to him, Was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or accept clothes or olive groves, vineyards, flocks, herds, male, female, slaves? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence, and his skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. This story repeatedly contrasts the characters that are in it. What happens in their life and how they respond to the situations of their life. And I believe that each of these contrasts is teaching us or inviting us into humility in our life. The first lesson that I think the story is teaching us and inviting us into is to allow God to use you anyway. To humbly allow God to use you anywhere that you find yourself. In the opening verses of chapter 5, there's this young Israeli girl. 
She's been taken captive from the land where she lived and brought to live in Damascus and Aram, and she is made to be a slave in the house of Naaman, serving his wife. And yet this slave girl says, God can still use me here. She allows God to use her as a conduit of his grace. And her humility is so great that she allows God to use her in spite of her living situation. And not only that, she allows God to use her to bless someone else, to bless her natural enemy. And her story is contrasted with the end of the story where we have Gehazi. Gehazi is living with Elisha, and we can assume that he is at least reasonably well taken care of. And in his life, over and over again, he has seen the power of God show up in miraculous ways as he's done ministry with Elisha. And yet at the end of his story, it's Gehazi, the guy in a safe place, presumptively near God, who decides to seek his own personal gain at someone else's expense. And as I read their stories, the truth that I believe they're telling us is this. God can use you anywhere. God can use your life for his kingdom, for his purposes, for what he wants to do. He can use you no matter where you find yourself this morning. You may find yourself in a really good situation or a really bad situation. You may feel like you are captive or you may feel like you are free. You may feel like you are removed from God's blessings or that you are living right in the middle of them. The difference for these two characters is who they could benefit from their actions. For Gehazi, he was close to God, he was near him, and had seen God over and over again, but his heart was bent on himself. What can I get out of this situation? This captive Israeli girl who found herself in the midst of a horrible situation of slavery said, how can I bless even my captors. And more than just helping to clear Naaman's skin, I think that what this girl saw was the opportunity to expose the commander of Aram's army to the power of God. I believe that this girl was looking ahead and saying, my situation isn't what I would like it to be. But rather than seek my own benefit, I want to see the kingdom of God moving closer to my situation. I want the commander of the army of Aram to know that there is a God and that he is more powerful than even his situation. She was able to look past her life, her difficulties, and to share the good news of the greatness of God. Your situation that you walk into service or maybe listen to a podcast or click on a YouTube or Facebook video, it's unique to you. And I don't know where exactly you are and where you find yourself, whether it's that season of blessing or that season of difficulty. But wherever you find yourself, God desires to use you to share with others of his greatness. And yet sometimes I wonder if we're tempted to hide from God. God is desiring you, desiring to use your life, and yet for many of us, we hide from God because we are more concerned with our personal benefit than advancing his kingdom. 
man named Arnold had reached the age of 105. And at 105 years old, he suddenly stopped going to church. And he'd been faithful for year after year. He almost never missed a Sunday. And so his pastor began to be worried about him. He went to visit Arnold at his home. When he got there, he was kind of surprised Arnold was healthy and doing well and was alert. And so his pastor began to say, how come after all of these years, Arnold, I, I don't see you in church anymore? Arnold lowered his voice and looked around a little bit. He said, I'll tell you, Pastor, when I got to be 90, I expected that God would take me any day. Then I got to 95 and then 100 and 105. I figured God must be pretty busy. He's probably forgotten about me. I don't want to take any chances and remind him. Sometimes we hide from God because we're concerned about our benefit. We don't want to remind God of our presence. Whether our situation is is really good or our situation is really difficult, we don't really want to be concerned with what God wants. We want to be concerned with our own personal benefit. What, What can I get out of this situation? What can I stand to gain? Or how can I better the difficulty that I'm in? But God's pathway to his work in our life, what he's calling us to do, what he's inviting us to do, is to be people of faith who see God at work in our lives by recognizing that whether we find ourselves in a good situation or a difficult situation, our concern by faith can be, God, how can I bless others that are in my life? What can I do so that the people who are around me the people who have influence and power, the people who I'm doing life with, how can I make you real in their lives? God, it's not about me and what I stand to gain. The Israeli girl, so far as we know at the end of the story, still was a servant girl serving Naaman's wife. But she wasn't concerned about her situation so much as what God could do and how he could use her, even in the midst of her situation. No matter where you find yourself this morning, if you're willing to allow yourself to be used by God and to have that kind of faith, God can and will use you anywhere. Second thing that I think this passage invites us to see is that we need to allow God to have control, particularly allowing him to have control instead of our worries to have control. Naaman arrives in Israel in verses 4 and 5, and he brings with him an extreme amount of wealth. One of the commentaries I read said that his gifts would have totaled almost three-quarters of a billion dollars in today's economy. And the king of Israel, presumably Joram, when he gets this letter, he tears his robes because he's absolutely terrified. He feels like this is another foreign king sending me a letter with all of these gifts. And the letter says to me, if you can serve Naaman. And the king says, who am I? I can't heal this guy. I can't do anything to to help this guy with the leprosy. And he views the gifts as a threat. As if they come to him saying, if you heal Naaman, here's the gifts you get. But you better believe if you don't. There's an equal but opposite punishment coming your way. By contrast, Elisha hears of the story. 
And he says to the king, send Naaman over my way so that he will know that God can still be present. He will know that there is a prophet in Israel. He will know that God is active and moving. And Elisha, unlike the king who is worried and stressed, Elisha is almost laissez-faire about the whole thing. Naaman shows up at his house and Elisha says to one of his servants, hey, go down, tell that guy to go wash seven times. And he doesn't even take the time to go down and meet him personally. Their stories remind me of the humility that it takes to allow God to have control in our lives. The reality is, so often we want to take control. We feel like God has placed things in our lives and said, you have to fix this. This is all on you. And we take all of that pressure and we own it for ourselves and say, I have somehow got to make this situation better. I have got to work out whatever it is that God wants to accomplish. How can I get there? Sometimes I think we feel like Calvin from Bill Watterson's cartoon. Tells his friend Hobbes, God put me on this earth to accomplish a certain number of things. Right now I'm so far behind, I'll never die. this tendency to take everything onto ourselves. It's all about me. How am I going to do this? How am I going to accomplish what God might want to do? And what God is inviting us to see in these two characters is that God can accomplish what he wants to accomplish if we allow him to have control. Sometimes the hardest place to be is the place of surrender where we say, it's not about me. It's not about my strength. It's not about what I can do or what I want to do. But it's giving the situations and the people in my life over to God and saying, God, whatever it is you want to do in this person's life, in my life, in my situation, I cannot control it. But I believe that you are good, that you are present, that you are powerful, and so I trust you. And I don't have to hold on to the control. I'm not the king of Israel. All of it is not on me to try to lead my situations in life and make them come out the way I want. But rather to allow ourselves to be more like the prophet who says, if God wants to show up, I don't even have to answer the door. God can do whatever he wants to do if we will allow him to have control. We also learn in this story to allow God to use anything, even the small things in our life. Naaman receives Elisha's instructions, and he's offended. He, he is the commander of the army of Aram. In Damascus, they have these beautiful rivers. The Jordan River is a shallow, muddy, nasty river. And Naaman looks at it, and he thinks, you're not even going to come out here and talk to me? I expected you to come out and wave your hand. I expected you to do some big miraculous show and call on the name of the Lord your God and that there would be this big pomp and circumstance. You want me to go dip seven times in a muddy river when I've got nicer rivers back home? He's angry and he's offended. But his, his servants begin to look at him and go, Naaman, what are you doing, bro? If he told you to do some great thing, climb a mountain and burn sacrifices and pay money, like you'd have been prepared. How much more when all he says is get in the river and dip seven times? 
And it finally dawns on Naaman, yeah, maybe I should try that. Maybe the simple thing is worth trying. See, God can use us to accomplish his purposes. And he wants to use us. He wants you to be a conduit of his kingdom coming closer to your family and your neighborhood and and your workplace and, and the community that you live in. So often we're looking for big shows. We want God to show up in the big, dramatic ways. I remember Christia and I, for our honeymoon, we went to Rocky Mountain National Park. And before we went, we were so excited. We'd heard stories of all of the different variety of wildlife that you can see. And we were excited. We, we bought binoculars and we bought cameras. And, and we were just hopeful that we were going to see some of the most beautiful displays of wildlife. We, we were driving around a corner and we were thinking, right out there in the pasture will be a field of mountain goats and I will just melt and it will be awesome and we will go frolic with the goats for a moment. <laughs> We saw some cool things. Most often it was that elk three mountains away that we could barely see as a speck in the binoculars. And since that time, we've continued to enjoy spending time in nature and photographing nature. But we've learned, if you want to experience nature, the best thing to do is just to sit in it, to wait and to be quiet. And sometimes you see profound things come your way things that surprise you and you would have never expected. Sometimes you notice the smallest thing that's right there and it just strikes you in such a powerful way. Christia, we, we tease Christia and our family because she loves moths. And I can guarantee you when I see all of their pictures from her sabbatical trips and hikes, there will be picture after picture of moths <laughs> because she's learned just to look at the simple small things that are there. In our lives, we want God so many times to show up in the big ways. We say, God, I want to see this big, dramatic movement. I want to see you do big and huge and crazy things, and the reality is, we can't. He often does those things when we're patient, when we're not expecting or not even looking for them. And he's often inviting us to say, Look around at what I'm already doing. As you take stock of your life and as you begin to look for me, you will see me moving dramatically in the simplest and the smallest of things. So I'm inviting you to be a person who has faith and has trust that I am there and I am working and I am moving and I am active. And you wouldn't just look at your situation and you wouldn't just think everything is dark and everything is scary and everything is bad, but that you would begin to just sit there and look at the small things and to know, I'm moving in that. And as you begin to take steps of obedience in the small things, you will begin to see my power at work in your life. God invites us to do the things that seem normal and mundane and small and simple. If you want to see God show up in a church service, keep showing up regularly for church services. If you want to see God transform your community, then find small ways to get involved in it. If you want to see God move in the lives of your children or your grandchildren, then regularly invest time in the small, mundane ways. If you want to see God move in your marriage, 
spend those small moments in the everyday, day-to-day things. So often, we want to see God move in the dramatic and the big and the spectacular. But the pathway to seeing God work in our lives is to be people of faith who allow him to use anything, even the small, trivial, and seemingly mundane things of our life. Fourth thing that I think God wants us to see in this passage is that we can allow him to use us in spite of our past. Naaman was a foreign military commander. He lived outside the nation of Israel, and he was removed from God geographically by nation, by religion, and by the uncleanness of his physical deformity. And yet he allowed God to change him. It wouldn't be too much of a stretch to look at Naaman's healing as a baptism in the Jordan River, a foreshadowing again between Elisha and Jesus. Naaman comes out of the water declaring in verse 15, there is no God in all the world except in Israel. He is so transformed in this moment because he allows this guy who is so far from God, allows God to to work in his life, and he comes out of the water saying, I believe in this God. There is no other God. And as he goes and he talks to Elisha about it, he says, I'm going to bring dirt from Israel because there's just something special about this place. I have experienced God here, and I need for the rest of my life to be close to this God. There is nothing else I need. All of the military power is the commander of a a warring nation. All that I've experienced is nothing. There is no God except for this God, and I want him for the rest of my life. I want to be close to him for the rest of my life. He's even worried. His his theology is a little bit off and he's not sure what to think and he's worried about going back home because he knows that the king, his master, will take him into the temple of Ryman and he'll be forced to bow down. Elisha, can God forgive me? I don't mean to bow down. It's my job. I have to. Elisha just tells him to go in peace. Naaman's desire, though he wasn't physically close to God, though he hadn't followed God his whole life and he'd never really even heard of this God of Israel. The desire for the rest of his life was to follow him and be close to him and seek to please this God. He was worried and concerned what God would think about him. And on the other end of the spectrum is Gehazi. Gehazi grew up in Israel. He had served for years with Elisha. He had seen miracle after miracle after miracle in his life when God showed up. And yet here at the end of the story, he's looking for what he can get instead of honoring God. And the curse that was upon Naaman is transferred to Gehazi. And the blessing that was on Gehazi has moved over to Naaman. Our past is not always an accurate predictor of our future. The man who is far from God, far from religion, draws near and seeks to please him. The man who was right next to God and had seen him again and again in his life seeks himself and is cursed. No matter what past we come from, our pride often gets in the way of what God wants to do. For some of us, we feel too far from God. We feel like, I've done something wrong, I've blown it, I've messed up, I've screwed up, and God could never work in somebody's life like mine. Or sometimes we find ourselves in the place of, I've been so close to God. 
And I've seen him time and again. And I've grown up with this. And it just becomes trivial and trite. And we begin to look at God and say, what can you do for me? What have you done for me lately? It's always been there and I've always experienced the goodness and we get a little bit snarky with God expecting that he has to continue to do our bidding. The difference between Gehazi and Naaman is that one of them, when he sees God, makes it his goal and his aim to please this God, to pursue this God, and to move closer to this God. For Naaman, in his moment of transformation, he says it is all Jesus from here on out. It is all the God of Israel from this moment. I will pursue and trust and follow him and live my life to please him. Versus Gehazi, who seeks to please himself. And we see this principle in any relationship in life, right? If you want to be close to somebody, you seek to honor them. If you're married, just try it out. <laughs> seek to honor your spouse, to love them and encourage them and seek their benefit and see how things go. Versus seeking your benefit and what you can get and how they can serve you. I guarantee you'll be a lot closer honoring them. God wants to use you in spite of your past. Whether you've never walked with God and aren't really sure what to think of the whole Jesus thing, or whether you followed him for your whole life, he still wants you to see that he is the one who is in control. He is the one who has the plan and the purpose. And invite us in humility to get on his path rather than our own. God moves in our lives when we seek to honor him when we allow ourselves to be conduits of his kingdom and his purposes, when we humble ourselves and get out of the way, when we allow God to use us anywhere, in whatever situation we might find ourselves in, when we allow him to have control in our lives, not to worry and stress and to feel like it all rests on me, but to know that it all depends on him, when we allow him to use anything in our lives, even the small, seemingly insignificant and mundane things. And no matter what our past is like, to recognize that if we keep our eyes focused on Him and His kingdom, that we can allow God to use us no matter what our past has looked like. Let me pray for you this morning. God, I thank you for this story that we read about. And I thank you for the ways that it invites us to be people of faith, by being people of humility. So often, God, I know in my life, if I'm honest, I'm in need of repentance. I want things to work out my way. I want my situation to be good. I want to be benefited. I want to see you move in dramatic ways. And, and sometimes, even in my pride, I feel the stress of feeling like everything in life depends on me. you invite us into Jesus' kingdom. God, I thank you that Jesus came to invite us back to the kingdom of God, not the world that we build for ourselves, the life that we build for ourselves, the kingdom that we build for ourselves, where we try to be in control and we try to take control of everything and we doubt your presence and your existence, but God, you invite us to choose the path of humility 
to have the kind of faith and trust that says, I believe that God is here because he promised to be here. And so whether my situation looks good or bad, whether I've felt close or distant to him, I'm going to lay that down and just trust that you are who you say you are. And I'm going to believe that, God, you're moving in my life because this is our God. It's what he does. It's who he is. And God, if you want to move in dramatic ways, I will be patient. And I will wait. And while I wait, God, I will relinquish control and I will begin to look for you in the small things. That they may give me the hope that they may increase my faith as I continue to choose to trust you and allow my life to be a conduit of your kingdom and your grace for my family, for my friends, for my community, for this world that you died to save and redeem. May I be yours, not me, but you, Lord Jesus. Not my way, but yours, Father. Help us to be people of faith who choose the path of humility that we may see your power and your presence, your goodness and your kingdom, that it may come, your kingdom come, your will be done in earth, in my life, as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to remind you again of the opportunity to worship with your tithes and offerings as you exit this morning and invite you to join us next week as we continue our series in Elisha. Go with God and have a great week. God bless.